today's uh, sermon is going to be based here on 1 Timothy, uh, the third chapter of, of Paul's letter, first, his first letter to Timothy, uh, verses 14 through 16, where he writes to Timothy and says, I write these things to you, hoping to come to you soon. But if I should be delayed, I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And most certainly, the mystery of godliness is great. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by the angels, preached among the nations, and believed on in the world, finally taken up in glory. If you don't, thank you for standing. If you'd bow your heads in prayer with me now. Father, we are so grateful for the manifold ways in which you have reached down to us, and especially here on Sunday mornings, that you allow us to gather and worship for you. Um, as we get prepared to hear uh, this teaching today, we ask that your hand would be upon Jeff in a mighty powerful way, that you would fill him with your spirit, that uh, the words we hear from his mouth are clearly from you, but that they would also find uh, fresh, good soil in our hearts, and that they would rest, those seeds would rest deep, and that they would grow. We ask, Father, that you remove all distractions from um, our hearts as we listen to him. Thank you, Lord, for loving us this way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Michael. Well, I'm glad you remember to stand in honor of God's word. And uh, it's great to be back with all of you. Great to see your lovely, uh, shining faces. I suspect many of you are sitting there smiling because spring has sprung. Do you feel it? I understand this time last week, though, you had snow. Was that right? Sorry. Yeah, we were on the beach. Sorry about that. And uh, I, I do want to give you just a little update on our trip to Puerto Vallarta, uh, Mexico. I had the opportunity to go with uh, a number of leaders. Uh, there were 30 of us in all. About 22 youth went on the trip. Uh, and just to give you just a few highlights, and, and later we'll share more. We'll have the students come up and actually share their experiences, which, are, which will just blow your mind. Uh, but we just want to encourage you this morning, uh, because of your faithfulness, uh, they prepared all kinds of things, as you can see from the pictures, just Bible stories that they did in dramas. They got on the floor and played with little kids in village churches. Uh, let me tell you, this was not a shopping trip. This was not a vacation. Our kids worked from morning to midnight, I mean, we got back, we usually had dinner around 9.30 or 10 o'clock, uh, and they just worked their hearts out, and all of our leaders who went on the trip uh, just set the pace. It was amazing to see them uh, work with such great attitudes. They showed up to serve, and they were a blessing to all the churches in YWAM uh, there in Puerto Vallarta. And uh, just on a personal note, I had the opportunity to lead about four seminars during last week. Uh, throughout the day, and, and I heard that they were very used to long meetings, so I took advantage of that, <laughs> and, uh, and we had a good time in the four seminars that we did. 
For those of you who do not know, this congregation raised enough money and then some to buy every one of those local pastors who, who were at the seminars, uh, to buy them laptops. And then to install a very, it's kind of an expensive program. It's called Logos Bible Software. And then what we did is we raised enough money actually to, to give them a $300 gift certificate, which I think is like a million pesos or something like that. And uh, we gave them like $300, a gift certificate to buy their own resources in Spanish. But then we loaded one of the resources that we loaded on it was uh, Craig Keener's background commentary on the Bible. So one of the seminars we did is kind of load it for them and then actually take them through that commentary, take them through a chapter in the Bible, Matthew chapter 7, and show them how to use it in sermon prep. And I mean to tell you folks, for those of you who gave to that, thank you so much for your generosity, but you would have thought you have never seen kids as happy on Christmas. Christmas morning. Like, it was just so amazing. They were so overwhelmed with gratitude that some church in the United States would give them this amazing gift. It was absolutely incredible. And then I got to lead some other seminars in terms of uh, just helping them to uh, get a better grasp or better handle on hermeneutics or the science and art of biblical interpretation. And then we also did some other seminars on uh, Jesus' leadership style, his preaching approach. And uh, one of the gentlemen came up to me after the seminars were done, and he, and he literally walked up to me, and he said, thank you so much for not yelling at us. <laughs> and I said, well, I had no intention of yelling at you. <laughs> and he said, sometimes when we have, uh, usually when we have speakers come down and they speak to us, it's just all like, ah, la, 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 you know, just yelling and screaming at us, but there's no content. And he said, thank you so much for giving us content today or this week. And I said, you're very welcome. Content, it turns out that's my speciality. So uh, you're very welcome. I was happy to do it. And they were just so overwhelmed. So I just want to encourage you guys. And I also want to thank you so much for your incredible generosity and your prayers. Uh, One thing I will tell you, I told you this was not a shopping trip was not a shopping trip. We did not have any time to like buy gifts for family and do things like that. But I did come away with one permanent souvenir. Uh, Ryan Patty, our youth pastor, our intrepid youth pastor, as you all know, had promised us that we could hike. We had one beach day on Monday and that we could hike to the beach. And he said, no sweat. Don't worry about the hike. Uh, The um, Asts, the the missionary family there with YWAM, their four-year-old son did it right? Their four-year-old son did it. So I was thinking, this should be easy. This should be no sweat for a 50-year-old man who never hikes. Uh, So I didn't wear hiking shoes. I just kind of wore my tennis shoes. Well, uh, during the hike, I noticed that that the little boy, Jude, who is now six-year-old, was being carried half of the way. (laughs) So that was my first clue. I I feel like that was sort of, there was like some misadvertising there. And then as I got, and I was trying to bring up the rear to make sure no kids got left behind, and all by myself, I'm in the middle of this sort of jungle, and I slip on the trail on, some, on a smooth rock with some slick sand, and I just got road rash from my knee down to the bottom of my calf. It just bloodied me up good. But then to catch myself, I put my other foot down against a rock, and I twisted my ankle. So I rolled my ankle. So a, a walk that was, should have taken about 40 minutes took me about an hour and a half. So thank you, Ryan Patty. Appreciate that. <laughs> Thanks for the souvenir, because now those scars will never go away. But just a reminder of how good God is. Thank God Christy brought uh, a, a first aid kit. 
Uh, today we're going to be looking at this passage that Michael read in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I want to share some insights uh, with you. Again, uh, no outline for you, but you can take your own notes. We'll have those notes on the screen. You know, we live in a world today where people think that they have their own truth. In fact, they think that they are the arbiters of truth. They think that they are the source of their own truth and their own authority to do and live however they want. And we live in a world that is becoming increasingly godless. I think you know that. But God has a people. God has a remnant. God has a household. He has a gathering. He has a people. And so we're going to look at Paul's charge in this passage. And so the first thing that we want to note uh, as a continuation of Daniel's marvelous sermon last week is, number one, that we are God's household. We are God's household. The word for household there is just the word oikos, oikos. And that word just means house. And when it refers to the family, it means the household, the household. And so last week we talked about being the family. We are God's holy family on earth, made up of Jew and Gentile alike, the fulfillment of a promise that was made to a couple 4,000 years ago. 4,000 years ago, made to Abraham and Sarah. He says, but if I should be delayed, he says, I don't want to be delayed, but in my absence, this letter will have to do. And I've written so that you will know, you and the people will know how to conduct yourselves, how, you, how to conduct yourselves as God's family, as God's household. God, our Father, and Christ, our Lord, and we, his brothers and sisters, gathered together in holy assembly, comprise his family, his household. Uh, I know these two kids And I don't know if they know this, but they're the answer to their parents' prayer. They're the answer to their parents' prayer. And the parents tried to have babies for many years, about 10 years, and they couldn't. They miscarried. And my friend literally has a tattoo, a mark uh, on his arm of their birth dates for everyone that they lost. And, uh, And so they almost gave up, and they decided to adopt. And so they were adopting. They got word that there was this beautiful uh, little lady who was having this beautiful little baby, and they got word they could adopt this child, and so they decided to adopt this child, and about the same time they were adopting the child, they got word that they were pregnant again. And so about a year after this little baby was born, or or brought into, adopted into their family, they had another baby. And now most people think that those two kids are twins. They're not twins. They are, kind of. But both of those kids are the children of promise because in a prayer meeting one night, they just felt the Lord say, I am going to give you a child. And now they have two, one by adoption and one by natural birth. And and I look at them as teenagers now, and I often wonder, do those kids know that they are the children of promise? Do they know that they are the answer to someone's prayer? And that would be my question for you. Whatever you're struggling with today, whatever you're going through, whatever mental space Uh, you've been in, in your life, and the stresses and anxieties that have come into your world and touched your life, do you understand that sitting right here in this holy assembly, gathered in this holy assembly with the people of God, that you are the answer to a couple's prayer? You're their children. Because that, that promise was that you're going to have a seed, a son, You're going to have a descendant, and through that descendant, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And we find out in the New Testament, that's Jesus Christ. And so through Abraham came a nation, and through that nation came one man who has now coalesced, who has now brought into the house of God a new people made of Jew and Gentile. 
And so he starts by saying we're God's household. Number two, we are the church of the living God. We're the church of the living God. So God's household is his assembly. It is his church. It is his holy gathering. We're people who come together with worship in their hearts and the praises of God on their lips. This is God's household, which is the church of the living God. A living God in contrast to what? Well, all the pagans know there exactly what he's saying. In contrast to false, dead, dumb, lifeless idols. And all idols are just that. They're false. They're not gods. They're dead. They're deaf. They're dumb. And they cannot impart life to us. They cannot impart life to us. And so all the way back, these Christians know their scriptures, all the way back in Isaiah 44, 8 and 9. And through the prophet Isaiah, God asked this question, is there any God but me? There is no rock. I don't know of any. All who make idols are nothing. And what they treasure benefits no one. There is no benefit in an idol. (laughs) There is no benefit in a false god. None, because they cannot impart the life that we desperately seek in them. And then Psalm 96, 5 says this, for all the gods of the people are just worthless idols, absolutely worthless. But the Lord God is the one who made the heavens. He made the heavens and the earth. And so God, you need to know, is category specific. God is category unique. There is one God, one infinite personal creator of the universe who created all things. And the psalmist and Isaiah are wanting to tell us and wanting to tell the Jews, listen, there is only one God who is the maker of all things, and he is the true God. He is your God and no other. And then Paul echoes both of these passages. He alludes to both of these passages when he writes the Corinthians about their idols and meat sacrifice to idols. He says in 1 Corinthians 8, 4, he says about eating food sacrifice to idols. Then we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one. He cites both of those passages. An idol is nothing. There is no true God, no real God, no infinite personal creator. There is only one. So what is an idol? What is an idol? An idol is anything we replace with God as objects of worship and devotion. It's anything we replace God with as objects of our worship and devotion, even if that thing has been designed for our enjoyment, our encouragement, and our nourishment, and our growth. It can be the idol of food. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 19, Paul refers to the God of the stomach. He calls it the God of the stomach. People chase after the God of the stomach. It can be the idol of sex, putting up on a pedestal your view of what a sexual relationship ought to be versus what God says a sexual relationship ought to be, and then chasing after sexual fulfillment at all costs, at the cost of your family, at the cost of your relationships, at the cost of everything. Or it could be the idol of materialism. Paul refers to this in Colossians 3, 5, this never-ending pursuit of things. Paul calls it greed, which is idolatry. Or it can be the idol of being right. Uh, this, is, this is the idol that mostly tempts me. I hate to be wrong. If I'm in conversation with you and you have to correct me about something that's out of my wheelhouse, and just so you know, when it's not biblical studies, I, listen, my halo does not transfer. Okay? I'm fantastically ignorant about a lot of things. 
And so if I'm talking about something and, and you have to stop me and say, oh, no, no, that's not right. I remember I was talking to uh, Michael Hickenbotham one time, and I mentioned uh, like the Declaration of Independence or something at the Smithsonian, and he came up to me after a sermon. He said, no, 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 what is it? It's in the what? What is it? The National Archives. And I was like, well, same, same difference. <laughs> I don't like to be corrected because I'm, I'm kind of a know-it-all. And for those of us who are wired like this, this can become an idol now. This, it can become the idol of just being right. And this, this, was, this describes the Pharisees in the first century. They just didn't want to be wrong. They, were, they became pugnacious about all that they knew or all that they thought they knew. And so we could make an idol almost out of anything so long as we direct all of our energy and our effort and our passion and our devotion toward that thing in place of God that is due God alone, Right? And this is why he has to say, you are the church, the household, the church, the gathering, the assembly of the living God, as opposed to these false idols, which are not alive. These things that we pursue were intended for our pleasure and intended for our enjoyment and intended to grow us and build us up, but they were not intended to replace God as the object of all of our affections. Idolatry leaves you dead. Idolatry leaves you lifeless. And life is only in the living God. So he has to tell them that. And then he goes on to say, number three, we are the stewards of the truth in the world. We are the stewards, and I picked the word stewards here because I think this is what this analogy is referring to. Now, I could be wrong. Uh, if you have a different idea, you, you might be right, but I, I probably actually am right. Uh, <laughs> so the idea that we are stewards of the truth in the world. And so he uses this cool analogy. He says, we're the pillar and the foundation of the truth. And so I kind of want to explain what this metaphor, what this analogy, what I think he means. Now, it is true in the ancient world. Have you ever been to ancient Greece or Israel and you've seen the, the ruins of buildings that have columns? And back then, temples and things, uh, those structures were dependent on these massive columns to hold them up. And I think that's probably part of the analogy here, and I'm sure some of the pagans here in Ephesus understand the analogy that way, but they also have a synagogue in Ephesus, and here's the thing. I think he's probably actually referring to the synagogue. And the reason I say he's probably referring to the synagogue is because in the ancient world, if you saw the synagogue remnants, what you would see is a square room, uh, a square room that could seat about 150 people total, 120 to 150 people. And in that square room, there were these bleacher, there were these sort of uh, stone bleachers built uh, around the room, these stadium seating for, for the elders to sit, sit on, and the younger sit down in the floor, right? And so in that, in that room, in the middle of it, was this teaching square, <clears throat> and there was a chair there. And Jesus refers to it in Matthew chapter 23 as the seat of Moses, and this was a symbolic seat in the synagogue uh, from which the rabbis would teach, but they would teach at the podium. So they would go stand, and, there were, and so there were several, in the middle of this room, there were several columns on each corner of the room, but the columns didn't hold anything up. These pillars did not support anything. They were richly decorated with uh, scripture, and there was one podium in the middle of the synagogue that was richly ornamented. It was large and it was richly ornamented with scripture. And this is the podium. It came about chest high that you would place the Torah or the prophet's scroll on. 
And it was there to hold up the text in front of the people. And the purpose of that pillar was to say, you live under this authority. This is the authority that, we've all, that we all live on. Now, I think those pillars in the synagogue represent the pillar of fire, which represents God's presence in the Exodus story. Remember that story where God shows up in this pillar of fire? And I think, it's, I think it's meant to convey to the congregation, when you sit under the reading of God's word, you are gathering in his presence. You are gathering a holy convocation in his presence. And so what he wants to say here, I think, is that in terms of us being the foundation stone and us being the pillar of the truth in the world, that we are the support system. God has ordained that the church is the support system of the truth in the world. When we went down to Mexico, it was amazing to see the support system. Like you have YWAM right in the middle of town in this very commercial district, and they're just so busy. I'm telling you, they, have, they don't even have to go out and witness because people just drop by and ask, hey, what's going on here? And it's a very outdoor and a very hospitable culture, a very friendly culture. And you, <laughs> several times during the week, somebody would come by and, and, and there was a cafe right next to uh, the YWAM building where we were staying, Youth with a Mission. And people would just walk up to us, gringos, and they would say, hey, what are you doing here? And we would just engage them and tell them what we were doing. And then we would say, hey, do you have a relationship with Jesus? Are you a person of faith? And they would say, Yes. And then we would lead them into that conversation. I mean, it was just, it's just amazing. But when you go down there, what you see is this incredible support system of churches, networked churches that are the pillar and foundation of the truth in Puerto Vallarta. It's awesome. And this is what the truth is in any locale, in any location. We are the support system. We're the place where you can come and we can invite the community in to say, we sit under this podium. We sit under, sit under this word this authoritative truth that God has for us. And so as the household, the church of the living God, we are the stewards of his, his truth in the world. We are the support system for this, this truth that God wants for the world. So how are we to be the support system? How are we to maintain our stewardship of his word? Firstly, we steward the truth by studying its truth, uh, its insights in the light of Christ. We study it in the light of Christ. Uh, one of my favorite things about the ancient synagogue is, is uh, the inscriptions. Inscriptions are just uh, sort of epigraphic remains. Uh, and epigraphic remains are literally, they would carve in the side of the wall the name or descriptions of that synagogue. And one of the descriptions in the ancient synagogues is the house of study. The house of study, Beit Sefer, right? Beit Sefer, the, the schoolhouse. And so this was a place where you come and you learn this was a place where you come and you become educated, and you and I are to study God's Word, and we are to be diligently to study its insights in the light of Jesus. Look at Ezra. Ezra sets this example for us. Ezra 7.10, it says, Now Ezra had determined his, in his heart to study the Torah of the Lord. The word law there is just the word, it's the Hebrew word Torah, and it just means instruction. To study the law of the Lord, to obey it, and to teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. Notice the progression here. You have to study it, you have to obey it, then you can teach it. So as you and I diligently, like Ezra, we study the Torah, we study the instructions, we study God's word, and then we begin to live it and apply it in our own lives, and then we can teach it to others, right? This is the pattern. This is the pattern. 
And so diligent study of God's word begins with purposing in our hearts. I love that. It says he determined. He purposed in his hearts. I am going to know the word. I am going to know its truths. I'm going to follow its precepts. I'm going to live according to it. And then Psalm 119, 155 says this, salvation is far from the wicked because they do not study your statutes. And so the psalmist is echoed by Paul, who tells uh, us that the good news of salvation in Jesus is according to the scriptures in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, the Bible does not know any salvation. It does not know any instructions for life and redemption apart from the scriptures. Uh, so on a, on a Sunday morning, I'm not giving you a TED Talk. On a Sunday morning, I'm not giving you self-help. Now, a lot of this, this is a good talk, don't you think? And, and a lot of this is very helpful. But it's studying the Scriptures in the light of its meaning about Christ, in the light of its revelation in Jesus. And that's what we're doing. And so the Bible doesn't know any instruction for life, any instruction for redemption apart from the Scriptures. The Bible doesn't know anything like that. And so this is what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 119. That said, mere study can actually produce in us the opposite of God's intended purpose. I want to be very clear about this. Diligent study of the Bible, becoming Bible scholars, you know, becoming sort of local theologians, can actually produce in us an abhorrent pride, which is exactly the opposite of what God wants to develop in us. Uh, Ecclesiastes 12 12 says this, but beyond these, my son, be warned. There is no end in the making of many books, and much study wearies the body. My doctoral exam, my defense, my oral defense is coming this Friday. You can pray for me uh, April 1st at 1.30 p.m. You, you can pray for me, but I've lived this scripture in Ecclesiastes. I am wearied from study. I'm exhausted from it. As a matter of fact, I think I'm going to take this week off. I think I'm just not going to do it because I'm, I've, just, I've been so full of study. But study apart from learning the text in the light of how is God forming the image of Jesus in me can weary you. It can weary your bones. And this was Jesus' critique of the Pharisees and the scribes. I want to show it to you. John 5, 39 through 40, he says, You, Pharisees, scribes, you study the Scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life. You think the key is to get, dig into the text and find the key to eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. What is Jesus saying there? Now, now listen, I've heard sermons on that passage that were absolutely wrong. They actually encourage their congregations not to become knowledgeable and not to become good students of the word. That is not Jesus' critique of the Pharisees, is it? That's not his critique. He's saying, you've diligently studied the scriptures because you think in them you have life apart from me. There's no life in the word apart from Christ. The best Bible study, in fact, the only good Bible study leads us to Jesus. It leads us to a greater revelation of Jesus' grace and Jesus' truth and how he wants to change us from the inside out. Amen? All right. First Timothy, back to First Timothy chapter 3. Now, notice in verse 16, he gives us a real quick hymn, a real quick song about what it is that we're the pillars and foundations, uh, the foundation of, the stewards of. He says, 
uh, and most certainly the mystery of godliness is great. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels. He was preached among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. And that's a great little hymn for the Christians there in Ephesus to learn. And Timothy is going to teach them this hymn. And what is he talking about? He was saying that the Son of God was manifest in the flesh. This is what we call the doctrine of the incarnation. So Jesus became incarnate. The Son of God became incarnate in a human life, Jesus of Nazareth. And he was vindicated in the Spirit. When Jesus made claims about himself in the Spirit, he made those claims in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he says, if you don't believe my words, believe my works. Believe the miracles that I do. And then he was vindicated by the Spirit in resurrection. All of his claims are put to the test in his death. And by resurrection, by the Holy Spirit, he's now alive. And the message to us is, he, he, turns out he was right. <laughs> turns out uh, he is who he said he was. Because God raised him from the dead. And he was seen by angels. After his death, the book of Hebrews tells us, he went into the heavenly sanctuary, the heavenly temple of which the earthly is just a model, just a type. And he goes into the heavenly sanctuary. And what does he do there? He doesn't go to hell. He goes to heaven. And, when he, and he ascends into the Father's presence in the heavenly sanctuary, and he presents himself as the spotless Lamb of God, acceptable to God, the sufficient sacrifice for the sins of humanity. Hallelujah. And the angels testify, the angels witness to his glory. And he was proclaimed among the nations. The gospel is the royal announcement. It is the royal announcement that God's son has come in the flesh and died a vicarious death, a substitutionary death, and risen victorious over sin, death, and and hell, and has ascended back to the throne of heaven. And he was believed on in the world. Listen, uh, the belief in Jesus in the first century was an absolute miracle. You couldn't believe on Jesus. Remember what I told you. Remember what I've taught you. All of Jesus' titles were already Caesar's titles, weren't they? King of kings and Lord of lords, that was Caesar's title. Uh, Son of God, that was Caesar's title. It was stamped on their coinage. It was stamped on their coinage. The Son of God... How about Savior and Lord? Those were Caesar's favorite titles. Soter Curios, the Savior and the Lord of Rome. And so these Christians are going into the world, and they're meeting with a bunch of pagans, a bunch of Greco-Romans, and getting them together in assembly houses and in lecture halls (laughs) and out in front of their temples and saying, hey, we have a gospel for you. We have good news. And they're like, what is it? The world's rightful Lord has come. The world's rightful Savior has come. What is his name? His name is Yeshua from Podunk, Nazareth. He died on a cross. Are you kidding me? That's the most laughable message a Greco-Roman could ever hear, and yet Christianity exploded in the first century. It took off like wildfire. Listen, belief in Jesus is a miracle. Every person in every culture who believes in Jesus does so because the Holy Spirit has enlightened their minds and their spirits and has awoken them to the truth of the gospel. He was believed on in the world, Paul says. And he was taken up into glory where he now reigns over all. God is king, folks. And he has ascended above the clouds and he reigns supreme on God's throne. Remember dying Stephen as he's dying and rocks are just crushing in on his head. And he looks up and he sees Jesus where? 
standing at the right hand of the majesty of heaven, the power of heaven at the, at the throne to welcome him into heaven. Jesus is king. And so we steward this truth. We steward the gospel. First, we steward it by studying it in the light of Jesus Christ, its revelation of Jesus. And second, we steward the truth by safeguarding it, by protecting it, by defending it. We steward the truth by safeguarding the sacred. How many of you lock up your homes at night? Funny thing about Mexico is when we were there, uh, the first thing you notice about being in, like we weren't in the resort areas, uh, we were in the neighborhoods, we were in the commercial district, and boy, let me tell you, you can imagine at a certain time at night how dangerous that place can become. And you can imagine it because you're looking at their houses. And they live in these really tiny domiciles that are just kind of stacked on one another. I mean, literally just stacked on each other. Next, right next door, they don't have any personal yards, but they all, all their homes have a, have a front courtyard, a little 10 by 10 front courtyard, about the size of most of your decks in your backyard. And it is just gated off and chained, and at a certain time of night, you can hear gates locking. And all of the windows have bars. I mean, it just looks like a prison house. And so you can imagine just how dangerous it becomes there, right? And it's because they love their families, and whatever things they have that are of any value are, are in their home, and they don't want those things to be stolen, and so they safeguard what is sacred to them. And so this idea is here in 1 Timothy 6.20. He says, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, Avoiding irreverent and empty speech and contradictions from what, what is falsely called knowledge. So Paul ends that letter by saying this, Timothy, safeguard that sacred trust of the gospel that has been, been placed in your life. He tells him to watch his life and doctrine closely. To avoid empty speculation in the pursuit of knowledge. Again, in 2 Timothy 1.14, he says, guard the good deposit. Guard it through the Holy Spirit who lives in you. The believer can do this because the Holy Spirit now resides in us, giving the energy and the power and the motivation to guard that which God has entrusted in us. And let me tell you, folks, there's a lot of churches today. I've told you this before. I'll tell you again. There's a lot of churches today that are just capitulating to the world. They are. And I don't mean to harp on this. I really don't. I hope you don't think I'm doing that. But I'm telling you, man, God has to have a remnant. God has to have a people who have decided we're not going to allow the pressures of the world to change what we believe about this book and, and the truth. We're not. We can be very sympathetic to their problems. We can be very empathetic to the things that they've gone through. We can, we can dialogue with them with reasonably and compassionately with understanding, but we have to stand on the foundation of this truth. We have to sit under the podium of this truth, don't we? We have to safeguard it. And this is what uh, Peter tells the believers scattered across Rome. He says this in 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts set apart or regard Christ Jesus as Lord. Christ the Lord is holy. And be ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. In the context there, these are people who are trying to persecute them and, and pressure them to just, just take Christianity and just deny all that bit, the bit about Jesus being the only way to God, right? Just deny that. No, 
we're to safeguard the sacred. We're to stand on it and do it very kindly and gently and compassionately, but nevertheless, defend it. But you can't just be a defender. You can't just be an apologist of the truth because then you'll become a pugnacious Pharisee. Now, I love apologetics ministries that are, that are vigorously working to defend the gospel in the world. What I don't love, so now I'm going to tell you my pet peeve, okay? I'm just going to, this is my soapbox, hang in there. I don't love Christian apologetics ministries where the apologist in that ministry is just constantly directing his critique at everyone else in the church, like laterally, toward us, the body. Can I tell you the truth? Here's the truth. I don't care how orthodox you are. I don't care how in line your doctrine is. All of us believe heresy somewhere. I mean, if you press me and follow me around long enough, you, you'll be able to catch me. Why? Because my doctrinal understanding of the word is being sanctified. I'm in the middle of a sanctification journey in which I'm trying to conform my understanding to the Word of God. So if you follow me around long enough, if you listen to me long enough, something I say is just not going to be right. But I don't need another believer pointing that out and calling me a heretic. I'm trying. I'm on my way. I'm, I'm on the journey of sanctification in my thought life and comporting my understanding to the Scripture. So we don't just want to be apologists for apologists apologists' uh, sake. We don't just want to be defending all that we believe pugnaciously against other Christians. We want to defend the gospel in the world. We want to defend the gospel against the assaults of the gospel in the world system. And thirdly, we steward the truth by sharing it. We're not just called to defend it. We're called to share it. We're called to share it. So I want to give you the key to the easiest and best way to share the truth of the gospel. And I learned it when I was in Mexico. <laughs> I mean, this is how I learned it. Okay, and I learned it from my mom. And I learned it from the Word of God. Share the joy of the gospel. Share the joy. I asked my mom one time, uh, I was talking to her on the phone, and she was telling me about somebody else that came to the Lord. I'm like, Mom, you're an amazing evangelist. I wish I was like you. And uh, I said, what is your secret? Like, what's the key? I want to know what the key is to Sharon's evangelism ministries. And she said, she said this to me. My friend came up to me the other day, and he said, there's just something different about you, girl. That's how my mom talks, by the way. <laughs> and, and she said, oh, I know what it is. It's the joy of the Lord, son. It's the joy of Jesus. And she said this to me. She said, everybody just want what I got. <laughs> everybody just want what I got. And I was like, mom, I want what you got. I want your joy. When we went to Mexico, man, uh, to a person, we, we did these highs and lows at the, at, at the end of the evening, and we asked the kid, what was your high? What was your low? What was a funny moment, you know, that you had as well? And so after Sunday morning, when we had been to these uh, Puerto Vallarta churches, and they experienced the exuberant worship of these churches, to a person, all of our teenagers said, it, the worship was powerful today. There was really something. It wasn't just that it was loud or that the music was good or that we liked the songs. And I know what it was. It was the joy. They just wanted what the part of our yardens had. Like, they just want that. 
It's the joy of the Lord. Now, Mary experienced this, right? So the angel has revealed to Mary, Jesus' mother, that she's going to be the mother of the Messiah. She comes back and just starts sharing it with everyone she knows. And in Luke 158, it says, her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. It doesn't say they shared her beliefs. It says they shared her joy. And there are times when people will not share your beliefs, but they can share something of your joy. They can experience the joy of the Lord that is your salvation. Let me ask you, are you joyous this morning? Does your salvation give you joy? So much so that someone would ask you, hey, what is this? what's up with you? Like, what is the source of this joy and this peace that you have in your heart and in your life? Now, nobody ever looked at a dour, depressed, religious person and thought, man, I'd really like to share some of that, <laughs> right? Like nobody ever looked at a frustrated, grumpy, fault-finding Christian and said, man, where can I get me some of that? <laughs> Never. Your, one of your greatest witnessing tools for Jesus is just sharing the joy that you have been a recipient, you have partaken in the divine life of the Trinity. <laughs> I mean, think about that. You are the household of God. You are, you are the pillar and foundation of his truth in a very darkened world. So some questions to end with here. Do you know that you're the answer to someone's prayer? A 4,000-year-old prayer about having kids and a family. You're the family. You're the household. Would you describe your faith as a living hope? Is it alive? Do you have a living hope and a living God and a risen from the dead living Savior? And do you see yourself as a steward of a sacred trust? How's your study life in the Word? How's your study life in the Word? Is it anemic and non-existent? I challenge you, get in the Word. Dig deep wells in the Word and draw the life out of it. Or maybe your study is merely academic. Maybe your study is really just sort of to fill your head with knowledge apart from Christ? Are you prepared to defend the truth against error? Do you know how to defend the truth and safeguard the truth against the onslaught against the truth in the world with a gentle and loving spirit? And let me ask you, when is the last time you shared the joy of your salvation? You know where you can share it first? You can share it with me on Sunday morning. Here's how you can share it, right? Instead of singing like this, <laughs> looking like you literally got, just got dragged out of bed, lift your head and put a smile on your face and lift your hands and your countenance to God and think about the grace and the gift and the love and the redemption and salvation that Jesus has bought for you. And don't ever let me see you singing like this again. Jesus, don't do that. Start your testimony right here in the household of God. Lift your eyes to the Lord, right? And so we start by celebrating together the joy of the Lord. Will you pray with me? I'm going to invite the ushers up. We're going to prepare to give communion this morning. Father, we just thank you for, thank you for your word. God, when we consider just how unworthy we are and how unworthy we were for salvation, 
What amazes us is that you've made us your household, us, the church, the gathering, the assembly of the living God, and that you've made us the pillar and foundation, the support system, the stewards, the guardians of your truth in this world. We're amazed. We're blown away. Thank you, God. We want to say thank you. Thank you for doing that. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you don't know Jesus, and you don't have that joy. You, said, I don't, you say, I don't know what you're talking about. What joy do you speak of? You can have it right now. You can experience it right now. Because the truth is, is that a creator God who was the sovereign ruler over this world made us in his image, and we fell into sin. And because we have rebelled in his kingdom, he has provided a means of salvation through the death and resurrection of his one and only son. Will you just confess that you believe on that? God, we believe that today. We make the good confession. Jesus Christ is God's only son, and he's our Savior and Lord, and he died on a cross for our sins to cleanse us from our sins, and he rose from the third day to give us life and rescue us from the permanency of death. God, we believe it. We embrace it. We entrust our lives, our very lives to you. And from this moment on, we have salvation and we have the joy of our salvation. Praise God. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord.